the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel dies and a man named Nabal unwisely decides to trash talk David and his men. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 25 verse 1. The title of the message is A Reasonable Heart. All right, for Samuel chapter 25. Chapter 24, David had an opportunity to kill Saul, but he used his decision to not kill Saul as proof to reason with Saul, to explain that if I wanted to kill you, I could have. But while Saul acknowledged his wrong against David, Saul does not repent. He goes home. And thus, when we get to chapter 25, David is experiencing a small respite from King Saul's murderous pursuits. But a respite doesn't mean an easy life. David and his men are still fugitives at this point. They don't have real beds or real homes or a real livelihood even. And thus, when someone else decides to mistreat David, he decides he's had enough of being wronged. And only the reasonable heart of a godly woman named Abigail is able to dissuade him. So chapter 25, we begin in verse 1, and in these first three verses here, we're going to set the stage for this conflict that's going to come up in this chapter. Verse 1, it says, And Samuel died, and all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel, and the man was very great. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance, but the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. Here we see that we get this announcement that's just almost kind of out of the blue, and we really don't even spend a whole lot of time on it, that Samuel dies. Uh, We met Samuel way back in chapter 1 of this book that's named after him. And he'd been faithful as a youth during the evil days of Eli's leadership. He's faithfully led Israel during the prime of his life. And in his old age, he faithfully anointed and advised two kings. And now Samuel has finished his race. And all the Israelites, they gathered together and mourned him and eventually buried him in his home there at Ramah. Samuel's life had such an amazing impact that everyone showed up to 
say goodbye and to mourn him. It's interesting, he had such an impact, as life did, that two books cover events beyond his lifetime that are, are named after him. I mean, everything we're going to find in the rest of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel, he's not alive for. And yet, those sections of Scripture are named after him. And I don't know about you, but I want to have an impact on people that last beyond my life, don't you? Charles Spurgeon, he said his most important goal in life was he had, he had it's either four or five friends. I think it's five friends when he was growing up. And none of them were saved when, when he became a preacher, a pastor. And that was the goal of his life, was to lead all of them to Christ. Four of them got saved throughout his life. The final one got saved at his memorial service. I want to have that kind of a legacy, where even after I'm gone, that people are still coming to the Lord through the influence I had. Now, the reason it moves on so quickly is because while Samuel's race is done, David's race is not done yet. And so the account moves quickly back to him, and we will find David experiencing a test that seeks to prevent him from finishing well. It says, and David arose, and he went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, Paran is the desert region that's south of Judah, so it's outside Israel. It's about 15 miles south of En Gedi, the, the oasis, mountain oasis area that David's been hanging out in. It's not really considered a part of anywhere because of how desolate it is. It doesn't really belong to any nation. Israel wandered in this exact region for 38 years before they headed back to the promised land under Moses. Now, it doesn't tell us why David leaves the promised land this time. Perhaps he feared that Saul would return to hunting them now that Samuel was dead. We don't know. What we do know is that while he was there, he ended up running across some shepherds who belonged to a wealthy Israeli. And so it's going to introduce him before it explains how they are connected. It says in verse 2, And there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel, and the man was very great. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, Maon is a few miles west of En Gedi, and it mentions that this guy, he lives in Maon, but his possessions, his work, his occupation, his products, they're in Carmel. Carmel is, this is not the same mountain or hilly region where uh, Elijah called down fire from heaven. That's the Mount Carmel that's famous. But this was a village in Judah, about a 30-minute walk from the uh, city of Maon. The scripture mentions that Saul passed through here on his victory parade after defeating the Amalekites. Remember when he's taking the king of the Amalekites all around with him, wherever he was going, parading him as proof of his victory and how he'd been faithful to the Lord? In fact, he put up a, a statue or a monument to commemorate the, a victory right here in Carmel. Carmel was a city or a village that was a bastion of loyalty to King Saul. And this is not area that's friendly to David. And it mentions that this individual, this wealthy Israeli, it says he was very great. He had a high status in the region, likely on account of his wealth. And it mentions that he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, he was shearing his sheep wasn't just, you know, oh, it's time to, time to shave the sheep. Uh, they would always have a big celebration when they would shear the sheep. So this was usually a time of festivities and feasting. And so uh, there's likely a big get-together here for all of his employees. Verse 3 introduces us to him. Now, the name of the man was Nabal. The name of his wife was Abigail. Now, Nabal means, well, it can mean a couple things. It can mean jug or jar. Uh, so maybe 
Mom and dad called him Jughead. (laughs) Nabal, though, can also mean a fool, uh, which will come into play in our account here. However, I doubt his parents named him after a fool. You know, it's not like he came out and he's all silly, like, nah, kid's a fool. Nabal, there you go. It's likely they were wealthy just like he was, and they had named him to be the one who they would pass their possessions onto. He was a jug, a jar, a container for their wealth. Isn't that nice to know? Mom and dad named you because you'd be the one to carry on their wealth. Abigail, on the other hand, has a very spiritual name. Abigail, it means that my father, God, is joy. That's what her name means. Now, we're introduced to her character first. It says she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. Uh, The word here, good, it it, it means something, can mean something that's morally proper. It can also mean something that's beautiful. Uh, Understanding is wisdom, discretion, the ability to act in accordance with the standards around you. In other words, I can intellectually know that the speed limit is 65 on I-4 in certain parts. Well, wisdom would encourage me and help me to go that speed limit rather than go 95. She had cultivated a beautiful ability to make good decisions, a wonderful character trait. It also mentions here that she was physically attractive. She had a beautiful countenance. On the other hand, the man, Nabal, he was churlish and evil in his doings. I've never been called churlish, thankfully. I, don't, I didn't know what it meant when I first heard the word many years ago. I'm glad no one called me churlish because it sounds horrible. It means harsh or cruel. It means you're a difficult person who creates hardships for others. And also mentions that he was evil, wicked in how he conducted his life. In other words, he was a difficult person to be around because he did wicked things. He did not fear God and how he conducted himself. He did what he wanted, when he wanted, and he had the wealth and the position to back it up. And it also mentions that he was of the house of Caleb. Now, Caleb, of course, was one of only two people that left Egypt who got to enter the promised land. Caleb was a godly man. And so it's possible he's bringing up his descent because he's saying he was nothing like that godly man, Caleb. He was a descendant of Caleb, but nothing like him. He had a, a great legacy. He should have, should have known better than to live like this. Well, verse 4 begins to tell us how David and this guy get connected. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. So David sent out ten young men, and David said unto the young men, Get up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. Now, since Maon is very close to En Gedi, what we find out as we go throughout this chapter, is that Nabal's shepherds had regularly brought their sheep to that oasis region of En Gedi. We already learned a couple weeks ago that that's where Saul was hiding out, was in a cave in En Gedi that was protected by a sheep gate. So this was a common place for shepherds to bring their sheep. Now, we will learn later in the chapter that David's men had provided protection for these shepherds. They had helped to keep both predators and bandits away. And so the shepherds and David's men had struck up a friendship. And one of those shepherds who must have mentioned that the sheep shearing celebration had started and word reached David. So David says, ah, I'll see if Nabal will repay my men's kindness by giving us some much needed supplies. So David sends out the young men. He says, I want you to go to Nabal and greet him in my name. The idea is to you know, give him a personal blessing from me. And thus you shall say unto him that lives in prosperity. In other words, tell him that I wish him a long life. 
Say peace both to you and peace be to your house and peace be unto all that you have. Shalom, wellness, wholeness, security. I want everything that's going on in your life, everyone who's attached to you, I want it to be going well. I want you to be doing well and everything associated with you to be doing well. This was a beautiful blessing from David to a man who is very likely pro-Saul. And having delivered this kind greeting, David's men were then to make a request. Verse 7, and now I have heard that you have shears. In other words, that you're having this celebration, lots of food. Now your shepherds, which were with us, we did not hurt them. The word there means to shame or mistreat. And he says, we, neither was there aught missing unto them. We didn't steal any of your sheep. All the while that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will show you. Wherefore, let the young men, David's young men that he's sending, find favor in your eyes, for we come in a good day. Give, I pray you, whatsoever comes to your hand unto your servants and to your son, David. Favor. The word there means compassion kind-heartedness. Wherefore, we've done you a kindness. My men have done you a kindness. Would you please do a kindness to them? For we come in a good day, a festive, a joyful time. You've got excess right now. Would you be kind to us as well? And whatever you deem fit. I mean, I'm not asking for a specific amount. Whatever you want to give, we'll be very blessed if you'll give it to us. In other words, your sheep are safe. You're enjoying the awesome benefits of that. And since you've been so blessed, would you mind sharing some of those blessings with us since we've helped you out as well and treated you with kindness? Might be saying, well, that's kind of presumptuous of David. He wasn't employed by this guy. No, David's not asking for wages. But David could have done evil and taken what he was asking for. The shepherds would have been no match for his battle-hardened men. David could have also demanded a portion for what he considered just compensation. But both of those approaches would be wrong. So David asked for generosity, kindness, and compassion. Let's see how it turns out. Verse 9. And when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David. And I love this. And then they ceased. They said everything David told them to say, and then they shut up. It means they waited for a response. They didn't add anything to it. They didn't add anything to what David said. They didn't threaten. They didn't accuse. They were simply faithful messengers. And that is a great reminder for us. God does not need us to fight his battles. He doesn't need us to stick up for his good name. He doesn't need us to exact vengeance on those who respond wrongly to him. It's our job to share the message and add nothing of our own to it. Nothing of our own to it. Well, Nabal, verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed from my shearers and give it unto men whom I know not where they be from? Who is David? Just a fugitive. Who's a son of Jesse? He doesn't come from an important family. And you know what? There'd be many servants nowadays that break away, rebel against their every man from his master. David's a nobody and you guys are just a bunch of rebels. Why should I help him? Why should I trust you? You're just a bunch of runaways. And yet, if we see closely the language in verse 11, we can see what his real issue is. Shall I then take my bread? 
my water, my meat, my shears. He didn't want to part with his stuff. It's always telling when someone is talking to me and they speak of my fill in the blank. It's always telling. I was raised very conservative in my outlook. You work hard, you pay your taxes, and your expectation is other people do the same. And so, you know, that's always been my outlook. But then I started hearing this thing come around in the early 2000s in the church. Why should my tax money go and have to pay for people who don't want to work? I heard Christians saying this over and over and over again. And I thought, well, philosophically, I agree. But something, something turned me off to that. Like there was something about it just seemed wrong. The, the mentality, the mindset, the, the way the verbiage was coming out. And I thought, Lord, I thought, why, why is my spirit bothered by this? Why, why is my heart bothered by this? I mean, I'm, I kind of have the same viewpoint. I mean, I've done ministry to those who were struggling or homeless or going through difficult times. I've done it for many years. And, and yet I, I, I lean this way in my viewpoints and I don't sense them necessarily changing, but something about the way this is being verbalized, it, it's convicting me. Like it shouldn't, this shouldn't be happening by brothers and sisters around me. And then it hit me. It's not my stuff. It's not your stuff. What's your problem with caring about what someone else does with your stuff? It's not yours to begin with. I am not criticizing one viewpoint or another in regards to how you feel about the government spending tax money. That's not the purpose of this conversation. Diatribe. It's always telling when I'm tempted to say, my stuff. I'm always aware that when that's my mentality, something's wrong in here. And whatever my viewpoint may be about how the best way to do things in life is, that needs to change in my heart because I'm always simply a steward of God's stuff. God had blessed this man incredibly. It wasn't his sheep. It wasn't his water, his bread, his meat. It wasn't his shearers. They weren't his shearers, you know? I've, I've been in management pretty much my entire life as far as employment goes. They've never been my employees. They were never my staff. They were never my workers or whatever you want to phrase it. They're the Lord's. It's not my wife, my kids. They're the Lord's kids. It's the Lord's bride. And I'm going to give an account for how I treat his stuff. A Christian shouldn't never miss say my stuff. It's all the Lord's stuff. I'm just his steward. Nabal's love of his stuff, his things, that was the real issue. And when the messengers return with that kind of response to David, it does not go over well with David. <laughs> Look at verse 12. So David's young men turned their way, they turned back the, way, the road they've come, and they turned around and came and told him, David, all those sayings. And look at David's reaction, verse 13. And David said to his men, gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And then David, he also put on his sword. And there went up after David about 400 men and 200 remained with their stuff. They had some supplies, and so he left 200 men behind to keep an eye on their stuff. And he takes 400 men, 
down the road to go kill. I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you David's intent here is not just to go take 400 guys and kill Nabal. They're about to wipe out an entire factory of people. Now, why, why such the heavy reaction from David? I mean, he's had quite a few people treating him like this thus far. Why, why is this the straw that breaks the camel's back? It doesn't tell us. But from David's verbiage later on in the chapter, it will be clear that he's had enough. He's done. He's done being mistreated. He's done being lied about. He's done being insulted. Everybody wants to treat me like a bitter rebel? Fine, I'll show them exactly what a bitter rebel looks like. None of you have ever said words like that, right? David's reaction, of course, is incredibly wrong. As I said earlier, he's not taking 400 men to exact vengeance on one guy. He's going to slaughter everyone who works for Nabal. And the Bible calls that murder. This would be a great sin against the Lord, against the Lord's people. David isn't being godly in this response. He's not even being reasonable right now. He's throwing off all restraints, and he's taking the path of least resistance to deal with his problems. And thankfully, somebody else has a reasonable heart in this situation. Look down at verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, one of, it says, a lad of the lads, (laughs) is what the Hebrew says here. And he goes right to Abigail, Nabal's wife, and he says, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute. The word actually means to bless. To bless our master, and he railed on them. He slandered them, insulted them, defamed them. But, the word but there is because that type of response was undeserved. The men were very good unto us. We were not hurt. Neither did we miss anything as long as we were conversant with them when we were in the fields. They were like a wall unto us both by night and by day. These guys were like city walls. Whenever they were around, we felt safe. All the while that we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you will do. The the phrase there, it's much stronger that it means you needed to know this information and you need to really think carefully about what you do next. Why? Because evil is determined against our master And against all his household, for he is such a son of Belial that a man cannot speak to him. This young guy gets it. He says, listen, he goes, what he has done here is cause a chain reaction and something is set in stone. Something is determined. Some calamity, some distress, some misery is not just going to hit him. It's going to hit all of us because of what he did. Because he is such a son of Belial, a son of Satan, a son of wickedness, that a man can't even talk to him. It's interesting that this young fellow here, he defines being a son of Satan or being a wicked person as being a person that nobody can talk to. Nobody can influence you. Nabal's unreasonable. He doesn't listen to anybody. Not even certain death would change his mind. Is there anyone that can call you out? When you're being foolish? Are there any people in your life that you'll listen to no matter how much you don't like what they might tell you? Does anyone have that place in your life? Because if you don't have anyone like that in your life, you're bound to make lots of bad decisions. In Proverbs eleven fourteen, later on, Solomon 
long after David is gone. Solomon will say this, Proverbs eleven fourteen. He says, where no counsel is, the people fall. That word fall there refers to calamity. They're going to experience ruin, misery. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety, security. I am so grateful because I've always had people who could speak into my life at any moment. I've always had individuals that they knew that if they saw something, they could come up to me and they could say, Will, I love you, but you're off. You're out of bounds. I'm so grateful for that because it's kept me from making a lot of bad decisions. It's kept me from making those types of life-altering decisions that can wreck you. Do you have anyone like that? You know, one of the first questions I ask someone when they come to me and they're telling me about a horrible situation, I don't know what to do. And the first thing I say is, do they have anyone that they respect? Anyone that they listen to, anyone that could speak into their life. And more often than not, when it's a really bad situation, the answer to that question is no. They won't listen to anybody. What's interesting about this employee is he's not necessarily coming to Abigail out of concern for Nabal. You can tell he doesn't have a high opinion of his boss. But what he realizes is that his master's foolishness is going to negatively affect them all. And Abigail knows her husband well enough to know that this young man is correct. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.